Good morning, church. My name is Ross. I get to serve here as one of the elders, family pastor. I'm excited uh, to be in God's Word with you guys uh, this morning. We are uh, starting a new series, a, a series uh, that's going to last us the next four weeks. We're going to be looking at uh, the book of Zephaniah. And in case you're wondering, yes, that's a real book in the Bible. Uh, it sounds like a fake name, but it's, it's actually a real name. It's Next Step, First Hesitations. Uh, and uh, no, it's, it's a real book. It's a book that you probably haven't spent a lot of time uh, looking at. Uh, in your uh, personal uh, Bible reading, unless you've been following along with our uh, reading plan this week. But, uh, but we're going to be spending uh, f- four weeks, the next four weeks, in, in the book of, of Zephaniah. And I'm excited because uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an obscure, random, small book, uh, three chapters, uh, and tucked away in what's called the Minor Prophets, which is a collection of, of 12, uh, 12 prophets that happen at the end of the Old Testament. It's obscure, minor, random book. But God works through obscure, random, and, and minor things. And so, uh, uh, so I'm excited what he's going to do in, in, in my life uh, and in, in our life as a church body uh, in, in, over, the next, over the next few weeks. If you uh, have been with us for a while, you know that Justin, our lead pastor, he's on sabbatical right now. So we're, we're praying and excited for him uh, and, and his family uh, for a time of, of, of rest and refocus and renewal. Uh, and, um, and we're also excited about how God can use his word by the power of his spirit to shape us over the summer as, as a church family and as individuals. So uh, with that, let's, uh, let's jump in uh, to the book of Zephaniah. Before we do that, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'll pray for us. All right, uh, let me pray. Father, by the power of your spirit, through your word, would you change us? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, um, so Zephaniah, you can uh, start flipping there now. It'll take you a while to find it. If you don't have a, a copy of Scripture, you can find one. They're, uh, they're right in the entryway in the back there. Uh, uh, the words are not going to be up on the screen behind me. So really, uh, we really value the, uh, having the Word of God in front of us. As, as I preach or as anybody up here preaches uh, and explains, uh, our words are only worth... Uh, worth anything insofar as they line up exactly with what you have in front of you. So, so let's be in the Word as a, as a people, looking, uh, looking in God's Word, examining uh, God's Word uh, together. Uh, a few, uh, few years ago, before, this was uh, 2017, 2016, something like that, we were, Monica and I were living in, in South Carolina, uh, and we were in the, the market for a, a new car, a used, a used car, a new, new car to us, used car. And uh, so we, uh, we are pretty uh, thorough car shoppers, like uh, uh, we examine, uh, we, we want to make sure we're getting the best deal. So we, had, we scoured the state uh, online, uh, the online version of, of the state of South Carolina, looking for a new car, uh, and uh, all over the place, all, uh, and even in North Carolina and Georgia, if you know your U.S. geography, those are the states that border South Carolina where we were living. And... Uh, uh, and we were looking for this, we were looking for a car, reliable car, small car. We didn't have kids yet, so just small car with good gas mileage, reliable. And then, of course, the number one thing is I had to fit in our budget. And so we were looking for this, and uh, uh, and we finally found one uh, up about a couple hours away. We said, okay, this is it's uh, it's exactly what we want. You guys maybe have have been in this in this situation. It's exactly what you want. Uh, good good mileage, good reliable car. It seems like so we're gonna. But the only problem was it was a little bit over our budget, right? And that's how it always goes. It's like, uh, it's just a little bit outside of what, what we were hoping to spend for it. So we say, okay, we're going to do it anyways. So we drive a couple hours away uh, to this town. We, we, uh, we, and we, and on the drive, we're thinking, okay, it's, it's a nice car. We like it. But uh, we, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to haggle. Anybody love haggling? Like, I love, I love to haggle. Uh, but we don't get to do that very often, especially on Marketplace now. It's like, no, no, I'm just show up with the cash and that's it. So, um, 
but uh, so we're, we're going to try to get this guy, talk this guy down a little bit, get him in our, in our, into our price range a little bit. Uh, and, and, uh, and so we, we get there, we sit, we test drive, look at the car, it looks great. Uh, there's a couple of little minor cosmetic things that we try to, okay, maybe we can use that against them and, and, and get a few. And so and we say, okay, look, at, well, like, we like this car, but can you come down on the price at all? And he says, okay, I can come down like 500 bucks or something. I was like, ah. I was really hoping for more, so so uh, so we had to, so we stepped away and we were talking about it and um, and 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 the question that Monica and I were wrestling with as we were trying to buy this car is like how much do we want this car like how to what extent to what to what lengths are we going to go to purchase this vehicle what how committed were we this was like we we done the research we knew what we wanted we knew this was the best deal but how committed were we to this car and when you're you know we were early 20s strapped for cash like it's kind of a big deal like buying a buying a car is like the the thing on in, you know and honestly it's like it's like that it can be like that in, in, no matter what stage you are but it's like it's the thing on our horizon like and how committed were we to this to this to this purchase how committed to what lengths were we going to go to get this car? And, um, and we ended up sacrificing, compromising. We went with, we bought the car. I actually drove it here to church today, so it, uh, that's the happy ending of the story. We bought the car. Uh, but, we had to, uh, but we had to wrestle with that question, like, was it worth it to us? How much was it worth it to us to sacrifice, to go a little, to get what we exactly what we wanted. Now that's a question that we have to ask ourselves all the time in every sphere of life, whether it's car purchases or maybe there's a relationship that's costly and you're like, how, like to what lengths am I willing to go to preserve this relationship that's really taxing? Uh, to what lengths am I willing to go to keep this job that I really need even though it's super demanding? To what, like, like for every decision that we, that we make in life, we have to ask ourselves, like there's a cost-benefit analysis, like to what extent Am I willing to go? What lengths am I willing to go to keep the, to preserve this thing, to keep this going? And that's a that's a question we wrestle with in every sphere of life all the time. We're asking it. We're, we're either even subconsciously we're wrestling with that question when we don't realize uh, or not. And what's important about that question is that it is a question that's actually kind of the subtext and behind a lot of the the Bible's uh, prophecy, the book the books of the prophets in the Bible, and particularly in the book of Zephaniah that we're going to be going over the next four weeks. That's the question. Behind all of the prophets and all, behind all of Zephaniah's words and all these, uh, all, all, all the, really the whole story of Scripture, behind it all is the question, is, is, is the question that God's people are asking, how committed is God to his people? How faithful, to what lengths is God willing to go to to redeem a sinful, rebellious, stubborn, perpetually serial, adulterous people. How committed is our king to his people? That's the question. It's never asked outright by any of the prophets. I mean, it is in some places, but it's never, in Zephaniah, it's never asked at the outset, or outright. But it's the subtext. It's what's behind what's being asked by this prophet. And so as we go, as we explore over the next four weeks, that's the question we're going to be asking is, how committed is your Savior, is your God, is your King? How committed is He to you as an individual? How committed is He to, you, to His people as a whole in, in, in light of our sin and our unfaithfulness? And that's a, that's, a, that's a question that we wrestle with in every sphere of life. That's a question that Zephaniah asks. But that's also like, that's a, a question that I have to wrestle with all the time. Have you ever found yourself asking this? Like, is the gospel, we never maybe would verbalize it like this, but we ask ourselves this, is the gospel big enough for my sin? 
as you look at your own heart and you ask, like, is my sin, like, you know, the, the sins, the habits that you can't kick, the sin, the, the dark secrets that you've never told anybody that you, you hope never comes out, uh, the, the dark thoughts and the things that you've done in your past, is your sin, is that too damaging, too consequential, too, uh, too weighty for God to deal with? Is the gospel really enough? But if that question isn't big enough, um, isn't daunting enough, we could also blow it up and consider the whole church, like all of God's people. As we look around the church and we read the headlines about uh, abusive pastors and just faithless churches and, uh, and, and, all, and all sorts of hypocrisy and abuse and harm that God's people ask, like we can ask ourselves, is God really committed to this sinful, hypocritical, abusive, adulterous church? Is God really powerful enough? Is he really good enough to redeem our mess? Is he really faithful enough to endure with me and to endure with all of us and change us? That's a question that the Lord has been pressed on my heart really probably uh, over the last three, four years. Like, there are sins that I struggle with that I've always struggled with. And, uh, and at times, like, it's incredibly discouraging and disillusioning. To see me hurt people, to see me hurt myself, to see me make poor decisions uh, based out of my flesh over and over and over again. I have to ask myself, like, is the gospel actually big enough to change me or is this just a story that I tell myself to, to make myself feel better? Like, is the gospel actually big enough? And that's, uh, and that's really at the heart of it. Behind all the prophets, behind, uh, behind all the words of Zephaniah that we're about to read, that's the question that, that we're asking. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at these questions in Zephaniah, and that's why we're calling this, this series uh, our, our Committed King. We're looking at our Committed King. So let's put, uh, let's, uh, let's put Zephaniah in its context. We're going to start, uh, so uh, we're going to, we're, we'll read the first verse of Zephaniah. Today we're looking at, uh, at chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse, verse 3. So this whole first chunk of, of Zephaniah here. Um, we're going to start just by reading, at, reading the very first verse, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll try to put Zephaniah in context here before we go on and see how, how Zephaniah answers this question. All right, so Zephaniah writes, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. All right, so... Here's Zephaniah in context, and there's a lot that's actually packed into that first verse that we just read, uh, uh, where he lists his, his genealogy, his, his lineage. What we see is that Zephaniah was written at the tail end, if you're following along in the sermon handouts, this is the first blank, uh, the, the Zephaniah was written at the end of the storyline, of the Old Testament storyline that's found, that's found in the Old Testament. And remember, the, the, the story of the Old Testament tells God's work to re, of God's work to redeem a world that's been cursed by sin, and he starts uh, in Genesis chapter 15 by making a covenant with a guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to use your descendants to reverse the curse, to reverse all the effects of the fall, all the effects of sin. Uh, and he promises Abraham, he makes a unilateral, unconditional promise to Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, and uh, that, that's going to be a, a great nation, and it's going to bless the entire world. And through you, uh, he, ma he makes a promise to Abraham's descendants, through you is going to come a king, and this king is going to rescue 
uh, my people from, uh, rescue the world and rescue my people from their uh, king. And this nation becomes known as Israel. And God rescues Israel, as we saw in the Exodus series this, this spring. God rescues uh, Israel from slavery in Egypt. He gives them a promised land. He makes promises to them and gives them prosperity and a thriving kingdom. And he also gives them a new way of life, a, a law that shows them how to enjoy the good life that he designed humanity for. Yet, from the outset, his people are rebellious. His people are complaining. They are like adulterous spouses, unfaithful to the God who rescued them. And so over, uh, and, and, and God, uh, so over the course of a thousand years, God uh, creates a kingdom out of this people, and he gives them an amazing king, David, and his son Solomon, and they experience prosperity and joy and flourishing and blessing to the nations. Uh, but at the same time, as all, that, that good thing, good, as all those good things are happening, their sin brings a whole host of devastating consequences. They are oppressed regularly by their neighbors. Their kingdom is split in two. So Judah and Israel are split north and and south. The northern nation is then, shortly after this split, wiped out, completely wiped out by the Assyrians. Uh, And then that that occurs in 722 uh, BC. And then by the time that Zephaniah starts writing and and speaking, the southern nation, he's in the southern nation, the nation that, that keeps going, Judah is also on the brink of survival. Uh, uh, um, and uh, they've had a couple good kings. They've had a couple. Uh, they've done a lot better than than their northern cousins up in up in Israel. They've had a couple good kings, and Ze- Zephaniah actually uh, is is in that lineage. So you, if you if you noticed, it says that he's the son of Cushi, Gedaliah, Amariah, son of Hezekiah. So he's a great great grandson of the last great, really the last great king of Israel. So he was kind of royal royally, had a royal lineage, lineage. He, was, he was in the royal courts. And, and Hezekiah was the, uh, was the guy who, who uh, resiliently stood fast and led God's people through, uh, through the Assyrian, uh, Assyrian invasion, in, invasion when, when Israel was killed. So, uh, and so, uh, but now they've, they've kind of, uh, uh, but since, since Hezekiah, they've had really Judah's two worst kings, Manasseh and Ammon came, and they were they become kind of like the uh, the 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 stereotypical like evil guys. Like if there's there's no one worse in all of Scripture than Manasseh and Ammon. They're the two worst kings of Israel, and they come right before a guy comes on the throne, a young guy named Josiah. And Josiah comes on the throne as, as a boy, and then as a teenager, he begins to bring about this, this, uh, this reformation and renewal in, in Israel. He's faithful. Uh, it looks like they're turning the, 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 cart, the ship around. It looks like Israel's on, on the... Uh, going to experience more blessing and more prosperity because of Josiah's reign. He's actually, Josiah is, we're told that he's actually the greatest king in all of Israel. So, um, so uh, there you go, Josiah. He's even better than, even better than David and, and Solomon. Josiah is, is more faithful than, than those two. But what we find out is that actually Josiah's reign and Zephaniah's ministry is really just the calm before the storm. Because 12 years after Josiah's reign ends, is, uh, Babylon invades, and, compl- and then 12 years after that, uh, they, they invade again, and Jerusalem is completely vanquished and completely destroyed. So God uses Zephaniah. This is when Zep- Zephaniah is preaching. Uh, he sees the end is coming, and, Zep- and God uses Zephaniah to tell his people, the people that he loves with an undying love, the people that, that he has kept his promises to for thousands of years despite their rejection, he tells them that the consequences for their sin are about to be felt. 
And the pain and the tragedy and the suffering are going to be excruciating. This is what the, the prophets are, are known for, right? A lot of wrath, a lot of judgment. That's what we're going to read. Uh, the pain and the tragedy and the suffering, they're going to be excruciating. The question is, is this the end of the story for Jerusalem? Is this the end of the story for God's people? How committed is God to his faithless people? What lengths will God go to redeem his people? Will sin and its consequences have the final word? And uh, so that... Uh, and uh, so that's kind of the context. That's, that, uh, that's the context for, for where Zephaniah is writing. Those are the major themes that we're going to see. So we, I've spent you know, half the time kind of setting, setting us up for, for this series through Zephaniah. We're going to spend the second half of our time really kind of looking through this whole section and kind of taking and seeing kind of three themes or three ways that Zephaniah begins to answer the question, will, uh, what, to what lengths will God go to, to save his people? Uh, and he begins with, uh, he begins in, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, he begins to answer this question with a thundering display of God's cosmic justice and cosmic discipline. So look with me at verse 2 and 3. We'll read those together. God says, this is how Zephaniah starts off his prophecies. He says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Okay, I hope you had your coffee this morning. When I was in high school, I had a, we had an a, a, a assistant a basketball coach, my, uh, my assistant basketball coach. He was like this fiery, intense dude. Our, our head coach was super m- mellow, mild-mannered, but the, the assistant coach was like, you know, all jacked up all the time and very kind of intense person. So before every game, he would come to us, he, you know, we we're kind of warming up. And, you know, like high school, we were always way too cool for school. So, like, we're kind of mellow, being cool out on the basketball court. And he comes up to us and he says... Now, you go out there and you punch him in the nose, okay? And now, I think he was being figurative, but the, the, the point of what he was trying to say is, like, don't be timid, don't, be, don't start out, don't try to size your opponents up, just go out and start the game hard, try to, to get an early lead, catch your opponents off guard, okay? And uh, Zephaniah, that's kind of the way Zephaniah starts this off, right? Um, uh, he, he takes his advice very, very seriously. He comes out swinging, and this universal cosmic judgment that, that, uh, that, uh, that Zephaniah comes out and starts this, this, uh, this book off with, we, uh, we figure out later, he, he uses the word, we'll, we'll see it uh, when we read it later, he uses the word the day of the Lord. So this, this, this idea of God's cosmic universal justice is, is known as the, the day of the Lord. And um, the day of the Lord, if you've grown up in, in or been around churchy circles for a long time, you've probably heard that. We have a lot of questions about, like, what does that mean? When will that happen? What, what will happen on the day of the Lord? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it both? What, like, what is the day of the Lord? And, and in this opening section, really throughout the, the book of Zephaniah, we see three, three things about the day of the Lord, that God's cosmic justice that he brings that, that, that stand out. And the first thing is that, uh, uh, I'll get to that slide later. Uh, the first thing is that the, the day of the Lord refers to God's final cosmic justice, judgment and restoration of the world. So if you're following along, there's blanks uh, in the handout. God, the day of the Lord refers to God's final cosmic just, judgment and restoration of, of the world. So if you noticed as we read that, uh, as, as we read these, these two words, the, the, the language here actually sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1. 
There's a lot of allusions to God's creation of the world. He says he will sweep everything away, people and animals, birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Those, those, these are some of the, minus the judgment part, these are the, some of the, the exact words and phrases that God uses to speak creation into existence. And now what he's saying is I'm going to undo, I'm going to destroy creation by speaking the very same words. Uh, 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 he's going to use the same words to, to destroy his creation. And there was another time uh, when God used this language of creation to bring judgment. Uh, all, just a few chapters after the world was created, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, God says this, the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Then the Lord said, I will wipe away mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, the creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky. This happens in Genesis 6. What happens in the next couple chapters? A flood comes. It rains for 40 days, 40 nights. Everything on the face of the planet is wiped away, is destroyed, save one family, a righteous remnant, uh, Noah's family, who were saved on the ark, okay? And so what Zephaniah sees, Zephaniah sees the judgment that's coming, and he looks back to the flood in Genesis 6, and he says, what's coming is this cosmic, flood-like, Genesis-level judgment on humanity, where everything, where all of creation, creation to its core, is going to be undone uh, in the day of the Lord. God's justice is so total and universal, it will be like a new flood. Uh, and so uh, what we see is this day of the Lord uh, is, is, the, the, uh, is a final great day of the Lord. When all of Genesis 1 will be completely undone. And this, this current earth, this current realm, this current sphere will be totally pass away and be destroyed. We actually read about this not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Jesus talks about this day, uh, and, and, and so does the book of Revelation. Uh, this world will pass away, will fade away, and it will be restored, replaced by a new one, a new heavens and a new earth. So when we read about the prophets, the first thing that we need to know about the day of the Lord is that it is the, the final great day when Jesus returns, creation is undone, this world fades away, and an, an a completely new world comes into existence. Uh, uh, comes into existence. If you're like, whoa, I, I didn't, I, that's not where I was going with the day of the Lord. Read Revelation 21. Read Revelation 21 uh, this week. Okay, um, so so that's the first theme of the day of the Lord that that, that Zephaniah wants us to make uh, wants us to be aware of. But secondly, and this is uh, let me go back to this mountain the mountain mountain ranges here. Uh, there's there's uh, uh, there's there's a second theme in the day of the Lord. And when the prophets talk about the future, they often talk about, um, they, they often see things on planes. Like in, uh, all, they see things in 2D, but really there's, there's different planes. So Zephaniah sees the first, this, the great climactic peak of the mountain, the great day of the Lord, the final day when Christ returns. But there's also these other peaks, these other peaks that, that look to Zephaniah to be the same distance away, uh, to, be this, to be on the same plane, but they're actually at different dif distances away from him. And so there's a second plane. So the great day is also is the final day, but also in Zephaniah's view, the, uh, from the Bible's perspective, the day of the Lord is also a second view, something much closer to, to Zephaniah. It's the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And that's going to happen 12 years after, uh, after Josiah's reign. It's on the immediate forefront for Zephaniah. So when we read about the destruction uh, and, the, and the judgment and the wrath in this book, like this is what Zephaniah is, is, 
is, is trying to prevent. This is what Zephaniah is trying to avoid. Like his people, the nation that he loves, the people that he loves, the city that he loves, it's about to be completely demolished uh, by Babylon. And he sees that like that cosmic justice is the same cosmic justice that's going to drive God to bring about a new heavens and a new earth uh, through Jesus on the final day. And that leads us to a third theme about the, the day of the Lord, that, that the day of the Lord demonstrates God's pattern of bringing salvation through judgment. This is how God always deals with sin and his people. He brings salvation through judgment. From Gen- whether in Genesis 6 or the nation of Israel, he sees the great cost, the damage that sin incurs, and the weight of its destruction, and he saves his people, but through a refining fire. This is a pattern over and over again. We sin, God brings judgment, God brings salvation. But here's the thing that, that here's the third theme, the third mountain peak that Zephaniah was seeing in the day of the Lord. Because ultimately, all the, theme, uh, the themes of God's judgment and restoration meets in one person. Ultimately, it all comes to a head in the judgment of one man, one innocent man on the cross. Jesus took the weight and the consequences of our sin, the undoing, all of what we read, the gory details of judgment that we read in any of the prophets, prophets especially in Zephaniah, all of that was laid on the chest of Jesus. The one innocent man was judged to bring about the salvation of the guilty. Um, so, so the day of the Lord, it looks back to the destruction of Jerusalem. As we read it, and we're trying to wrap our heads around what is being talked about. It looks back to the day of the destruction of Jerusalem. It looks forward to the new heavens and new earth. But it also points us to and causes us to stare at the wrath of God poured out on Jesus himself in our place. Okay. So that's, uh, that's how he starts off, but the story doesn't end with God's cosmic discipline. He moves on, and, um, and we, we have to ask ourselves, like one of the things that makes us uh, not like the, the prophets is, is the fact that God's anger and wrath seems kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? Like, uh, like vindictive and pointless, just venting of anger. But that's actually, that, that's because that's how all of our anger is always, uh, or typically. Uh, but that's not at all how God works. God's, uh, God's wrath and God's justice and discipline always has a purpose. And, and to see the purpose, let's jump to the end of, end of this, this section, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, let's, let's read those verses now. He says, Zephaniah says, Gather together, starting chapter 2, verse, verses 1 through 3. Gather together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the, and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. So what's the purpose? What's, what's all this meant to teach God's people? Uh, all of God's wrath, all of God's discipline, what is it meant to, to, to produce in God's people? It is meant to restore a relationship to himself. It's meant to restore. And that's the greatest invitation that, that Zephaniah here at the forefront offers his people is you see the cost and the damage and the weight and the separation that your sin has caused. Be restored. Uh, and then this restoration comes through two ways. Firstly, notice how he emphasizes public repentance. Like he, calls, he tells them to gather together, gather together as a nation. So in other words, their sin wasn't going to be dealt with by 
each one of them going to their private rooms and praying silently, oh God, I'm so sorry for my sin. Like, uh, no, they were to come together as a people and publicly bring their sin out into the daylight and, and, and confess it. It says, gather yourselves together. Gather together undesirable people. And often, like in a, we, we're so individualistic in our society uh, that we, like, we, we, we don't even have, really have a category for how to deal with sin publicly. But there are certain practices that we can do to, to follow God's model of, uh, that he lays out for his people to, to publicly repent. And the first thing is that, like, I, I, I do this all the time. Like, when I sin against someone, when I, see, when I say something I shouldn't have said or whatever, like, I, I will confess that sin to God, but rarely will I, like, go to the lengths of, like, going to the other person and saying, I hurt you with my words. Like, I, I, I rationalize and say, like, well, I only sinned against God, so I just need to, like, deal with that personally with God. But actually, true restoration comes through publicly repenting, like going to the other person and confessing, like, hey, yesterday when, we were, when, I, when, I, when I was speaking to you, like, I, I misled you intentionally. Like, I, I lied. I was scared about what you'd think of me, so I, mis, I misrepresented myself to, because, to try to impress you or, or whatever. Like, and, and own our sins publicly. Uh, before the other person, not just confessing them before God. So that's the first thing that we can do is, is, is confess sin face to face. That's, that's just one step that we can take out of our individualistic, isolationist, private lives, private spirituality, and move it into public, a public uh, relationship with Jesus. The second thing that we can do is we confess our sin as a people when we gather, and we, re- we publicly rehearse the gospel together. That's why we do that periodically as a church. We confess our sin in a prayer, or we confess our sin, uh, we can, we confess our sin in, a, in a reading, we confess our sin in a song that we sing. Like, we should be a people who, are, who bring our sin into the light, because that's, that's, that's the only path toward true healing and true restoration uh, that, that, that God desires for us. So let the weight of your sin push you to true restoration, true public repentance. But then secondly, the, this thing, restoration comes through humble obedience. Did you notice what he want, What does he want for the people to do? He wants them to, to humble themselves and to carry out all that, I have, that they have commanded. Our sin and, and the consequences of our sin that we feel in our lives, that should lead us to a place of being brought low to humble, to humble ourselves and being brought low by the weight of our sins. Uh, when, I was, when I was engaged to Monica, we were about four months out from our wedding, and God had been like laying the hammer on some sin in my life. Uh, there were, some of it was sexual sin, some of it was just uh, the way I treated people, and I knew uh, that, uh, w- that if I was going to commit myself to loving Monica for the rest of my life, if we were going to go through getting married, um, I, I needed to bring that out. Like, I needed to confess that to her. I needed to bring it out into the open. That's not always the solution, but it, is in, it was in this, this, this situation. So I needed to bring that out. And I remember just being like, it, it was a, a period of months of like me, like, I don't want to confess sin. I don't want to, like, but God just kept pressing, pressing and pressing the hammer on my, on my heart, pressing his thumb on my heart. And, uh, and, and I remember just, be, just weeping and so ashamed, uh, so broken, so embarrassed, so knowing, like, uh, yeah, just, just knowing, knowing that with everything in me, I, want, I did not want to do this. Um, but, I, but, but the weight of my sin brought me to a point of complete, humble brokenness, uh, to the point of tears, to the point of anguish, to the point of confession. And brothers and sisters, like, 
that is what I believe that God wants every one of us to experience in, in light of our sin, to complete brokenness about our sin. Uh, what, if, what if all the frustration, all the anxieties, all the broken relationships, all the pent-up bitterness, all the dissatisfaction, all the misery and the pain in your life that you try to hide or numb, what if all that just keeps coming up, hanging around in your life, because you have yet to be brought low by your sin, because you have yet to be bowed down at the end of yourself, desperately acknowledging the pain caused by your best decision-making. There are people who call themselves Christians. There are people in this room who will go their whole lives without being honestly wrecked by their own sin. Don't let that be you. What a misery. Uh, And if that was you at one point, like, if you were, if you have been broken at one point, like, don't let that fade. But here's the promise of the gospel, that in Jesus, the cosmic universal wrath of God has been fully satisfied. Through the one through whom everything was created and by whom all of creation is upheld, that one was brought low and humiliated. Our sin that should have led to the undoing of all creation and our destruction was instead credited to his account and led to his undoing and his destruction. Jesus was the one Israelite, the one Judean, the one who, uh, who did what the entire nation and what we all in this room have failed to do. God himself was cut off. God himself was swept away. God himself was humbled to restore his people back to himself. He brought our sin out into the open and he defeated our enemies publicly for us. He was humbled to pay for your sin, so what could keep you from humbly coming to him? Uh, so restoration comes through public repentance and restoration comes through humble obedience. We're gonna skip this passage, but okay. Let's, uh, uh, there's, a third, there's a third theme about God's discipline that we need to, that we'd need to see in, the, in these opening chapters of Zephaniah. God's discipline restores a relationship. It does so by removing our confidence in lesser things. It, does, it restores a relationship. The only way that you and I are restored to a relationship with God is when our confidence in lesser things have been completely removed. So let's go back to the middle section. We're going to just kind of skim over most of chapter 1 here. And I want us, want us to see two things that God, that God removes. Okay, So starting in verse 4, let's read. We're going to see that God, God's discipline crushes our idolatry. God's discipline crushes our idolatry. Starting in verse 4. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal. That's like the fertility god of the Canaanites. From this place, the names of the pagan priests along with the, uh, along with the priests. Those who bow down and worship on rooftops to the stars in the sky. Those who bow down and pledge to the Lord, but also pledge to Milcom. That's one of the chief gods of the Babylonians and the Canaanites. Who's, he's, he's, his, word, his name means king. So they bow down to the Lord and also to this fake king. Uh, and those who turn back from following the Lord, and who do not seek to inquire of him. So here's what God tells his people, both back then and today. If you and I are going to be restored to a right relationship, then you must love, follow, and devote yourself to me exclusively. See, it's not as though Jerusalem had rejected Yahweh outright. 
they had merely added to him. They added, this is, uh, this is what Milcom, uh, statues of Milcom would have looked at like, and this is what worship to him would have looked at. They pledged a loyal, loyalty to the Lord, but also to this fake God. And you might say, well, that is actually not enticing to me at all. I would never, <laughs> I would never bow down to that. Um, uh, but if we're honest, like each of us, the ancient practice of bowing down to statues has not disappeared in our day. All right, it's just transferred to new modern idols. Uh, at root, the Judeans were looking for their idols to provide for what only God was meant to provide. Comfort, prosperity, acceptance, power, security, assurance. Uh, and wh- so why do we pledge our allegiance to these things? It's because they have come to occupy a place in our hearts reserved only for God. Because ultimately, what we're looking for, acceptance, approval, significant security, like only the creator of our souls can offer that. And he looks and he sees our adultery and he says, you may pledge your allegiance only to me. Anything else will destroy you. Anything else will distort our relationship. But did you notice what he says? He makes a promise. He says, I will cut off every vestige of idolatry, every vestige of Baal. Our God is so utterly opposed to idolatry, so radically committed to restoring a relationship with his people that he will remove any obstacle. And that is, on the one hand, an incredibly terrifying thing. God will do whatever it takes to remove your idolatry. But at the same time, like that is an incredibly, an incredible comfort. The idols that you bow down to and you have bowed down to for your whole life that have led to tremendous amount of pain and suffering in your life, there will be a day when God himself will destroy and will will write his law fully and completely on your heart, when he will destroy every vestige of the, of the, of the, of the sick, uh, sick, sick causing, illness-causing idolatry uh, that, that you wrestle with. So be terrified and be comforted uh, by that promise of God. Okay, and then finally, though, God's discipline kills our complacency. God's, God, God's discipline kills our complacency. This is what he says. We're going to see this all throughout Zephaniah. At that time, I will search, verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing good or bad. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. Their silver and gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. So Jerusalem was fat and happy. They were comfortable and they were complacent and their wealth insulated them from, from a need for God from a sense of their need for God. Don't let that be you. We live in a, an uh, affluent, comfortable time and nation and, and, and area. Don't let your, your, uh, your, your material wealth and security insulate you from a desperate need for God. Because ultimately there will be a day when those things will not satisfy. So, is the gospel big enough to handle your sin? Maybe you know the gravity of your sins this morning. You felt the weight and the damage that your selfishness has produced. Like, don't run from, downplay, or ignore that feeling. Embrace it and let it push you to the Father. Because the good news of Jesus is twofold. That his death satisfies God's wrath against our sin, so that he no longer counts any of it against you. But his resurrection from from the dead means that he will raise you to a new life as well. And in the new life that Jesus offers you, you will be free from placing your confidence in lesser things. If you are his, 
then he is even more committed to crushing your idolatry, to killing your complacency than you are. The question is, are you willing to follow Jesus into death? Are you willing to allow the Savior to do the heart surgery and painfully remove the cancer that before it consumes you? If you are, I promise you that the joy is worth the pain. So let me pray for us. Father, would you teach us to rest in that gospel? Would you teach us on the one hand the awe and the terror and the, and the majestic fire of your holiness and at the same time to delight and rest and cherish the incredible promise of the gospel that one day all the pain that we incur upon ourselves, that our, that our best decision making incurs upon ourselves will be wiped away and we will worship you and be restored to you through Jesus to a perfect relationship. So teach us to press into that gospel. Amen.